Hello and welcome to Biz Trends 2023. I'm your host, Rutendo Nyamuda. And on today's episode, we have the incredible Bronwyn Williams, partner at Flux Trends. So Bronwyn, I kind of want to jump straight into it. In the opening paragraph of your recently published annual trend report, you start with AI, the GPT suite, and chat GPT. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of today's talk, can you maybe just unpack what AI is, the GPT suite, and of course, chat GPT? Yeah, so essentially, like artificial intelligence is something that people haven't actually even properly defined. I mean, philosophers will debate what intelligence is, what artificial is, and you can get yourself into a corner very, very quickly. But in essence, it is synthetic intelligence or intelligence that hasn't evolved biologically. That's rather being created by us to serve us or perhaps one day to, to rule and guide us or at least to help us make better decisions on the fly about first uh, less important things and later on about more important things. GPT is quite a big breakthrough in the generative text and generative image space. And that means it's basically like a form of machine learning that's looking at all the information that's out there. Quite often the information has been produced by you and I, what we like, what we don't like, what our answers are on Wikipedia for certain definitions, like definitions of artificial intelligence. And it's effectively then designed to curate then responses to questions that we put to it, whether that question is in a, say, an image type of generative function, like the likes of Midjourney that I think many people have played around with or any of those create an avatar apps you can link to your social media feeds, where you effectively ask you a visual question saying, look at all this information about me or about what I think I want and produce something in the, in the likeness thereof. The chat GPT is just working on a text basis there, again, looking at the whole body of knowledge and information that has been trained on, which is pretty much the whole of the Google Internet up until to a couple of years ago. So it's a little bit behind us, like the, the actual information that GPT is being used on, used in at the moment. And it will then search through that, much like your Google algorithm does, and then give you a curated answer. So instead of giving you a list of websites or a list of answers that you can then choose from, it instead creates then the, the middle of the bell curve kind of an answer from the information that is already found out. So it's waiting, just like a Google algorithm would do, what sort of information is more important, what's more frequent, and it's giving you a homogenized, aggregated answer that is basically like the average or the consensus view of whatever question that you are asking it. So the important thing to understand about this is that it is backwards looking. It's been trained on data that is already in existence and can be seen as a very smart search that is then giving you a more humanified and more useful answer to the problem of complexity and too much information that we have in the world. So it can be seen to be making sense of things, but it, it's actually just actually looking for what's already there and giving you giving you some sense out of it to a certain degree. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating and very, very insightful. I want to zoom on to ChatGPT for a little bit, um, especially in the marketing and communication sector. Um, as you've mentioned, this is something that has been human-made and man-made. And is it something that we should fear as creatives to a certain extent um, as something that might even take over our jobs? Or how do we work together with an aspect of ChatGPT? Well, that's a question for you. The question is, if you consider or title yourself to be a creative, are you actually creative? 
or are you just producing the bare minimum, right? So there's a very big distinction between actual artists who do something new, bring a new perspective, and writers that attack the human condition in a way that resonates with us in a new, fresh way, and people that produce pure content. There's a very big difference between a post that's been designed for LinkedIn or for a corporate blog that's been designed to, you know, uh, attract the bots. You know, like the best example I can give you there is the recipes. If you try and go search for a recipe these days, you first have to wade through you know, 200, if you're lucky, to maybe 20,000 words of very poorly written prose that has been designed simply to prop up the SEO, you know, functionality and relevance of that particular recipe page before you finally get down to the recipe, which is like five ingredients and two steps, and that's all you actually wanted. So, you know, if you're writing content for bots, and I include human bots in there too, so if you're creating content for people that aren't actually looking for anything new, they're looking for the average, they're looking for the base case scenario, then yes, you should probably be quite frightened. You're producing mediocre work. This can do produce mediocre work better and faster than you can. As I said, it's looking at work that already exists and it's giving you the average or its best likelihood understanding of what the consensus view on whatever topic you're writing about or drawing about might be. So if you're not adding the new things to the conversation, you should be very frightened about it. But this is something we've spoken about a lot at Flux, about how if you want to be future-proof in terms of your career, you have to be adding value and not being a cost center. And a lot of us that work cushy, remote, white collar, or inessential jobs that thought we were very, very smart through COVID to get richer by doing very little, sitting at home, which many of us did, compared to the essential workers who are out there doing real things and actually earning a real living through tangible work, we thought we'd kind of hack the system, but the system hacks back because as soon as your function in any organization becomes a cost center or grudge purchase to your boss, then of course it makes absolute sense to replace it with someone else that can do an efficient, good enough job which is basically what we can see a lot of these tools will be. Now that said, I don't think we need to be frightened about a total job apocalypse. There's plenty of room at the top and at the bottom, as we will know if we peruse social media and see the sort of characters that float like flocks and jets into the, the top of our consciousness across social media, make very nice living for themselves, saying shocking things that come at the fringes. There's a lot of room at the bottom and the top for humans to be more human. So we really need to double down on what makes us us, and we need to actually unlearn a lot of the things that we've learned through this whole sort of digitization of society, which was training us to be more bot-like, to write for bots, so the bots index your website. That skill we're going to have to unlearn if we do want to be future fit going forward, if that makes sense. So think about it. Anyone in the middle of the bell curve is in much more trouble than people on either ends. Now, that said, the answers that these things can produce for us and the content they produce is mediocre, and it also can be biased or can actually be inaccurate. If the majority of people in the world have an inaccurate opinion about how gravity works, you can have an opinion about gravity. That doesn't mean that you're actually going to be right about it. You're probably still going to need some sort of degree of fact-checking. So, so in essence, like a whole of those new careers we've had in the digital content information age that were all about creating and producing content are going to shift where the value is to correcting and curating answers that are now really, really available to people. So there's new opportunities. As much as things things get shut down, new things open up. But if you want my advice, stay away from the middle. So, and that is that is absolutely incredible advice. And there is so much uh, weight behind a lot of what you've said. You know, you really got to think about the content you're creating. You've really got to think about your job and your position. Um, and then, what would you be? What would your advice be around like you know getting new skills and gaining new skills and possibly even 
interacting and engaging with these technologies? Well, but the first step is, of course, to play around with them and to see what parts of your job it can do and then stop doing those parts of your job as fast as possible and <laughs> do something else instead. So you have to understand how they work, what they can do, what they are capable of. And you'll see very quickly if you do play with them what their limitations are, but also how powerful it is for freeing up your time for other things. And it's a great self-test. So if there is any part of your job that can be automated by these things, it will be automated. Your boss is not an idiot. That's why he's generally your boss. I know there are a few idiotic bosses out there. But in general, people that are entrepreneurs and people that are in the business of making money from things are very well aware of where the inefficiencies are in their organizations that includes in your role. So do a diagnostic on yourself, see what can be done, and, and hand it over to the machines with gratitude. There's never been any success in human history into holding on to tasks. And there's a great book if you want to have a good life with yourself and being scared of and resistance to technology called The Evolutionary Man, which is, follows a family of Stone Age, sort of a band of, band of humans, early humans. And the, the father is very reluctant for all these new technologies, including things like sharp sticks and the wheel and fire, because, you know, you're going to do him out of his value as the, the head of the, the household, which is which is quite ironic. But we always tend to think of things in terms of our own position in space and time rather than the, the greater picture. And, you know, hanging on to old, less efficient ways of doing things because you think that justifies your salary or your value to society is exactly the wrong way to look at it. In fact, that's going to do the exact opposite. <laughs> Well, Bronwyn, I'm certainly taking notes because I feel that the shift is here and it's either we step into it and, as you said, play with the technology, get familiar with the technology, see what it can do for you and see where it can speed up some of your, you know, insights and your skills and then how you can better yourself uh, as well along the way. Thank you so much for that. So moving on to one of the main focuses of your key trends. Uh, with a specific focus on social contracts, which I found absolutely fascinating. You actually identified that on every level, from micro to macro, from the family unit to the workplace to the nation state, that social contracts that actually have held our society together are starting to come apart. What did you mean by that, um, by that statement? Well, I think it's a statement everybody kind of feels. I mean, what was the word of the year at Davos that came from, I think it was Adam Tooze that coined it, the, the permacrisis word of the year. It's this idea that everything is in flux and everything is changing all the time and how do we actually cope with it? When we start to un interrogate those ideas, what you can see is that being a human is a team sport, even for like lone agents like myself and like Dion, who much prefer to work by ourselves and work in a team all the time. You really can't get anything done. You can't earn money. You can't build a career. You can't have a family without interacting with other people. And society is an artificial construct. It's an artificial construct that is governed either by control or by consensus. So in your more totalitarian society, society is held together by rule of law, rather rule by law, rather than rule of law. So like a dictator says, and then it is done. And if you break the rules, then you get in trouble. And the, the, the dictator has enough control over armed forces and over the population to actually enforce those laws that he makes that hold society together. And again, we, not, we tend to think of it in very sort of moral terms. And for us, oh, that's a bad person. But history also has a lot of examples of good kings with total control who made choices on the, in the best interests of their societies, understanding that if the population is happy and successful and wealthy and progressing, then his role is actually also more secure. So, you know, like we tend to think of it in very Western terms when we think about how, what sort of social contracts we can have. 
And then you come to us and democracy, which is the, the whole point is to be ruled by consent of the government rather than by force. You know, so we have rule of law rather than rule by law, that laws apply to everyone, including the lawmakers and their checks and balances. And that's how our democracy works. Separation of church and state, separation of the judiciary and the executive arms of government. You know, these, this is how our social contracts are defined. But again, it's critical to understand that they are artificial. They have been created by people, either through force or through consensus, and they can be renegotiated. Now, particularly in terms of a, a rule by consensus in a democratic society, those social contracts, written and unwritten, written being this is the taxes you'll pay, these are the laws you will abide to, and in exchange you'll get this sort of physical physical security, you know, in the form of social entitlements or social grants, and also in terms of some sort of degree of protection and some degree of electricity from the grid or, you know, functioning road networks and traffic lights, whatever the case may be. There was a trade, and some of that's explicit, some of that's implicit. And when, but when those contracts are violated, again, either implicitly or explicitly, you get unrest. And we've seen this in South Africa, I've seen this across the world. Even before COVID happened, our theme of the year in 2019 was about the sense of brewing unraveling. And we just collected hundreds of photographs from all across the world of mass protests that were taking place because people felt those social contracts weren't win-win anymore. They were win-lose. So in your democratic societies, you were finding that some people winning all the time and some people losing all the time. And in other words, the best parts of democracy were kind of falling apart for us. And that's the very macro scale. And we can see this in numbers when you're talking about in France right now, the population sort of protesting against raising the retirement age, because governments simply cannot afford to make good on the promises they've made, telling people they're going to work from the age of 21 to the age of, say, 62, and then they'll be guaranteed a state pension. I'm saying they've got to change that to, you've got to work until you're 64. That's on the one side, it seems like a violation of trust. You know, we're getting, giving more and getting less. But at the same time, if people are working less long hours or not being as productive and labor productivity has decoupled, you have to understand that like that real value only comes if we are actually creating it, right? It doesn't come from nothing. It comes from labor, it comes to work, it comes to ideas, entrepreneurs. So either way, it's not working for anyone. Like in South Africa, we're very, very aware of this. We have like an electricity price increase of like in the double digits coming to us, but we're getting two-thirds less electricity than we did last year, guaranteed load shedding on the side. So it's like we point, we're paying more and getting less. That's a very obvious example. We all understand that. But this is happening across society. People feel like they're paying more in taxes. We've had a fat increase, for example, which affects the poorest of people in society. But then social grants don't necessarily keep pace with inflation. So again, people are giving up more and getting less. And somehow this doesn't sit well with people. And people will put up with it till a certain point, depending on how patient the population is. And then we have a period of, say, revolutionary change. Not necessarily violent revolution, but maybe regime change. Maybe more explicit sort of changes in policy as to what is expected of states and what is expected of citizens. And that's a sort of background macro context we have. And we can see this at even larger scales with what's going on with the rights and responsibilities of nation states to each other where we see countries that have been famously neutral, like so several of the European countries are, not being forced to choose sides in the Ukraine-Russia war, for example. So again, that's a social contract that has to be renegotiated, saying, wait a minute, you can't actually have the protection of your neighbors unless you pick a side, unless you actually back your neighbors in these times. And we see, of course, the allegiances in terms of trade agreements, also separating at the moment into different world orders. We've heard a lot about that. There's a lot of, a lot of rumors and also truth to what's going on with different countries trying to work against 
against the dollar hegemony in our global societies, that's going to rewrite a whole lot of contracts as to how the world works. That's at a large scale. But I think the one that's perhaps most interesting to our clients is at the mid-scale, which we alluded to when we were talking a bit about AI and all of that and how the relationship between what an employer is and what an employee is also a contract that needs to be renegotiated. This is renegotiated on a one-on-one basis with people asking for increases, asking for the right to work from home, asking for more freedom and flexibility but also happening at like a more global level because like what if you work for an international company and they've got rules to who's got to be where and when and what hours you work and what freedom you get and that's got to be then rolled down to South Africa but you're like wait a minute I live in a country with load shedding I can't get to the office it's not fair you know so these things they, they, they seem local but they're actually global and then you add into the mix things like three-day and four-day work weeks for example and what does it mean to work is work a time-based agreement or is it a value exchange which is what I was getting to with the AI Thing, right are you giving as much as you are getting in exchange and that goes both ways are employees taking too much advantage of employers like abusing work from home conditions or is it the other way around and there are always cases on both sides some bosses are bad some employees are looking for shortcuts right and the way that our current contracts are written they're all time-based they're time-based whether you work in the consulting space whether you've got a salary there's some time-based expectation there and we need to kind of reshape shape that to be more value-based and that's a fundamental rewriting of the way our whole economies work so our whole post-industrial economy is based on the labor time trade-off right this is how we measure like the, that's baked into the equations that measure and monitor and manage the way our economies work so these are very important questions that we have to have and businesses can experiment with them on a one-on-one basis but they're still part of a greater system right so if your company like we do works a four-day work week but your clients are working a five-day work week what do you really do when the client says they want to see you on a friday but your team doesn't work right you know like how do you how do you actually negotiate that and, uh, and those are all things that scale up. And then at the really micro level, we also see like this renegotiation of the unspoken and spoken contracts of how we relate to our family members. Like who does what unpaid work in the home? Gender roles are up for immense scrutiny at the moment, not just from the trans rights movement that is questioning what gender even is and making us question those very explicit contracts but also in terms of whether men or women do certain chores or give up certain trade-offs with regards to child rearing, with regards to splitting bills and all the rest of it. The idea of what a nuclear family is, again, up for grabs. Ideas like polyamory are gaining prevalence once again. And human society has gone through various curves of being more monogamous and more polyamorous over time. And we could be reaching a shifting point there. But then how does that tie up for your marriage contracts that underpin so much of us that are microeconomics affect your tax brackets, that affects your rights. Married people have more rights than unmarried people, right? These are all contracts that we take for granted, but they all can be renegotiated. And I think that that's what the sort of theme that I'm looking at for this year is, the renegotiation of the contracts that govern really what it means to be human and live in society from the home all the way up to multi-organized, multinational organizations. This is all, it's, everything is connected. Once you start sort of pulling at these threads, everything comes apart. I think to continue the conversation from Flux perspective is that last year we spent a lot of time talking to companies and to workers about life audits coming out of COVID, really assessing what, what we value as individuals. So if last year was about looking inside and trying to audit your own life and your own values and your own morals, what you want, 
this year is like a more explicit re-evaluation of the, the external contracts that are then holding us back from actually actualizing the, the, the to-do lists we put together in our life orders. Bronwyn, this is incredibly fascinating, and it, but it can also feel quite overwhelming. I think the question is, where does one even start? You've spoken about these social contracts from a family perspective, where you know now where you're at home and the typical norms that you spoke about earlier are not what we're necessarily seeing. You've spoken about the COVID pandemic. We can definitely see a difference between a pre-pandemic, a pandemic and post-pandemic, where even in a work setting, um, you know, some companies are still fully remote. Other companies um, have a hybrid situation. Other companies were like, just come back to work and be full-time staff. And then, as you've mentioned, on a macro perspective, um, even with governments and society, uh, the collapse of a lot of um, certain establishments, as well as the collapse of things that we naturally thought, um, especially in a South African context with, you know, electricity and, and load shedding, um, these are things that we thought naturally um, would be of ease to us. So there's a lot of upheaval, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of anxiety around where do I start and what is the right base point? And then now who creates those rules? Uh, does that become us as individuals or is that it's no longer societal? Well, there's a bit of both there. I mean, like the whole point is society is underpinned by these contracts and both, both explicit and implicit. And we and we work with them by consensus, right? So there are ways to start to challenge it. And we've definitely seen that in offices in terms of those sort of the, the mid-tier sort of contracts that are taking place between employees and employees, where individuals are challenging systems. If you want to work with me, you're going to have to work according to what I want. And of course, there's pushback on those sides. But I think it's important to note that just because contracts aren't working, if contracts have been violated by one party, we've kind of got two choices. Either we can call in the lawyers and we can try to reinforce the contracts as they were written. This is what groups like Alta try and do. They try and call government to account, you know, like do what you were hired to do. We pay you to deliver services, deliver services to us. They're trying to enforce the contracts that we already have, or at least to encourage the other party to uphold it, either by, you know, threats of, threats of perhaps, you know, like a tax revolt or whatever, these can still be seen as levers to try and fix the status quo, right? But the other choice is to say, if these contracts aren't working, let's come up with something entirely different. An example there would be, for example, a new political party that will come up with a new set of policy prescriptions. There's some very radical ideas that I've been speaking about with Bruce Whitfield and 702 and doing interviews all over the place talking about ideas that are regaining popularity right now with things like, instead of having things like income tax, which again is challenged by the, the, the contracts that are being renegotiated in boardrooms between employees and employers, right? Like for if we're not working on time, we're working on contracts, how does our tax then fit in? You know, like when we're renegotiating these things, we can renegotiate other things too and say maybe we shouldn't be taxing incomes or capital gains, we should be taxing other things like land values, which is a big example at the moment. I think even the Republican Party in the US is also proposing different ways of collecting tax, which can be seen as, a, as proposing a different sort of contract, what we give and what we get. And of course, all these ideas can be challenged and be up for debates, but I think it's quite exciting that we can talk about them. We can say we can challenge even those very fundamental things that we take for granted, like having a third of your paycheck taken out and going straight to SARS. Like, aren't there other ways to do this? Should we be should we be taxing monopoly like landlords and 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 rentier classes of our society, like the 
the spectrum hogging, you know, like cellular networks of the country? Should we be taxing them for their monopoly rights rather than just being paying them and, and, and collecting taxes on the end? Should we be taxing the source or the mouth? And these are these questions are all, I think it's a great time to renegotiate them. If you're renegotiating how you work with your boss, your boss needs to renegotiate with its supply chain, how that works in an exchange. You know, like industry's got to renegotiate with government how this all fits in and again from the citizens the state perspective too so we've got a lot of ways that we can influence these things whether it's just talking to your company and trying to renegotiate contracts there these things have roll-on effects if they, once they come through at scale but also depends who we vote for who we pay attention to what ideas we popularize what means we share on our social cha cha channels because these are all things that ideas start to take seed and change the conversation all these things can be renegotiated we've done it many times before in human history we take our political and our sort of socioeconomic structures and systems for granted but they were put in place by men and women like us mainly men many men from europe and you know like we can we can propose different ones and if you get enough people to buy into them that's it society has changed right mm -hmm. Bronwyn, in a sense, it sounds like you are also speaking a little bit about shadow governance, which is something you also discuss in your report. And to pull out one of the quotes that you have said, you said, expect less from the government and more resourcefulness and resentment from the governed. Essentially, what does that actually look like? Democracy is supposed to be a participatory project. I think we've got quite a false idea. We tend to think that our role in democracy is pitching up to votes every four years and picking a color t-shirt, right? I think that's, that's our job as citizens done, but it's not at all. Like our, it's our job to call the leaders that we've elected to account. It's our job to step in where they are failing and to replace them, hopefully, with, with better ideas or to vote better and differently next time if we're not getting what we want from that. Or as I said, to challenge the very structures behind it. I mean, like we were allowed to challenge the constitution we have, even the amazing, you know, world-leading South African constitution. We have a right to challenge it, right? It's, a, it's not a done deal. It's a progressive project that every generation has to contribute to. This idea of being a citizen in a democratic rule by consensus society, you have to participate, right? So we're seeing the rise of all sorts of interesting social projects. One of my favorites is run by a man called Daniel Gatti in New York called Maximum New York. And what he's done is just one guy, but he's got this whole movement together where he's got his fellow New Yorkers to get together and literally clean up the streets, the notoriously dirty streets in New York, right? But they turn it into like a social event and they're like, they know they pay taxes. They know their taxes aren't being used properly, but they're fixing it anyway because they're expecting that it's not going to be fixed and you can complain about it for four years but what are you going to do you still have a dirty street for four years or you can do something about it well that's the one side that whole sort of expecting less from government seeing society step up and fulfill the roles that they're doing but it's also being very aware that if they in effect then you're paying twice for the same service right this is where the resentment comes in and the resentment is where you've got that brewing anger and unrest that is going to lead to some sort of social change if it's left unchecked Yes, we know this all too well in South Africa, where crime is not is, is a problem and the local police force isn't working. While well, we pay, like, you know, your ADT or your, your feds or whatever the guys, the, whatever, whatever security company you've got on your street to come and protect you. So you pay twice for the same service, same with schools. They're not functioning. You, you send your kids to, to government, to, from government school to private school, and on and on we go. So we make a plan. We, we do this. We're doing this already. South Africa is a world leader in shadow governance. This is where citizens just provide services they're not getting in exchange. 
But bear in mind that there is a resentment that grows over time there too. And that does lead inevitably, eventually, sometimes longer than we would like, to some sort of a renegotiation of that social contract to say, actually, we want emancipation for the governments. And again, South Africa, we've got great case studies there where you can see actual towns who have taken their cities to court or the right to govern themselves. So instead of paying rates and taxes to their city, to rather pay it into a community trust because the government was unable to, you know, collect the trash on a Tuesday like they're supposed to do. So you see, that's a renegotiation of a contract. We're not going to pay our rates to the central planner. We'll pay it to our community leaders instead. And if that functions, that's okay. That's a new way of looking at it. But we have to see these things can happen and do happen. But they're going to happen at a greater and greater scale as the contracts that are violated are bigger and bigger contracts. Mm, absolutely fascinating. And Bronwyn, I would love to hear your thoughts on, I mean, just from your report and, you know, the breakdown of the aspects that you looked at what is the most fascinating and exciting thing for you that you foresee uh, in the next 12 months? Hmm. The next 12 months? Well, the next 12 months, the conversation is unfortunately going to be dominated by your GPTs and by your AIs. Last year, we had Metaverse, Metaverse. Before that, we had NFTs, NFTs. We're going to be in the middle of that hype cycle there. Uh, I think it's also interesting to note what's happening with the big tech companies at the moment. As much as tech is a big part of the conversation, they've also been letting a lot of people go at the moment. So again, there's a lot of big changes happening in that space. Again, that they're basically going off the inefficiencies in the markets. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It scales, obviously bad for the individuals caught up in that. But that, of course, does mean that there's a bit of a vacuum in terms of capital and where it's going to be deployed next. I think some of the interesting signals to look at is how much cash the venture capital firms across the world are sitting on right now, waiting for the next big thing. So we start to see where that is deployed. That's where we're going to see some really big movements in what comes next. So, so watch what happens when that sort of dry powder is applied to a marketplace where there are a lot of now underemployed, really smart people walking around and a lot of people really interested in what's happening with the breakthroughs with uh, AI and everything else there. Very, very exciting couple of months coming ahead. I just want to say thank you so much, Bronwyn, for joining us today on Biz Trends. It has been absolutely phenomenal speaking to you. Some incredible insights, a lot of food for thought uh, for the way forward and the future to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Biz Trends 2023 Big Impact. Thanks to our contributors, sponsors, listeners, and readers. Catch all the trends impacting your sector on Biz throughout January.